Pranakosha live stream. Hi folks, this is Matt at Pranakosha Productions, and today we have the extreme good fortune of interviewing once again Al Allen, who wrote this book here, Clues Can Light the Way. And Al has the distinction of being the very first person that I've ever interviewed on my channel. And um, so now we're coming back and we're going to see us see each other again. And um, we had a slight outline set up ahead of time. And I asked him one question, which was, um, how did it go? If you were able to go back in time and you could go back and you could talk to the young Al, Alan, what advice would you give him? What things would you do different? Like as if you were your own guardian angel, if you had a time machine, you could somehow Ooh. do that. Ooh. And you know, you asked me that, I don't know, a week or so ago, I guess. And <clears throat> it's been haunting me ever since because that's a tough question. I, uh, I'll tell you what, I, I often thought that if I could give myself advice, it would be to be more patient. In fact, I have a little sign right down here, right below my screen, written on a little chalkboard, and it says patience. Because I think that when I was really young, I had less patience than I have now. And it often got me in trouble. <clears throat> I think along with patience, probably compassion, although I've always felt that I was compassionate, that is, I, I can feel certainly the feelings of others, uh, you know, you, empathy you have for those who are suffering from some, maybe a loss of a loved one or whatever it be. I thought I had that, but obviously I didn't have enough of it as a young person. And I think it was really much later in life that I started to uh, develop a more realistic level of compassion for others. And the more I thought about that haunting question of yours, uh, I have to confess, uh, I was actually driven to tears a few times because wow. it brought back memories of things that I've done that were Eh, a little short-sighted, maybe a little um, selfish, where I didn't have the compassion and maybe the patience to deal with a certain thing. You want to hear one? Sure. <laughs> I, I, I can chuckle about it now only because it was like about 60 years ago. Um, well, maybe even a little more than that. Let's see, I'm 83. Yeah, that's well over 60. I was... Uh, graduated from high school and my father's father, a really cool guy, at my high school graduation, he surprised me with a ring. And I thought, well, that's neat. Until I looked closer and I realized, wow, this is a diamond ring. I had a diamond in it. Wow. Well, way, way back then, <laughs> you know, a, a kid, a bumpkin from Leonardo, New Jersey, um, you didn't get to have a diamond ring. And uh, he said, look, you have so pleased me all through your life and a big portion of mine. He said, I want you to have this ring. 
it's been in the family for years. I mean, it was a really meaningful thing. Wow. And um, so I, I took it and tucked it away in a safe place. Uh, it didn't fit right away, so I didn't have it on. But, you know, at the end of the summer, I went off to college. And while I was at college, I had you know, a few conversations with the folks back home and with my grandfather about it. Never anything that gave me feelings of doubt as to his health. And uh, I went home at Christmas time. And after I'd been home a few days, grandpa called me. He actually called the house and he talked with my folks. And he, when I got on the phone, he said, Ellen, on your way back to college, and that's about a 400 mile drive. I had a, a, a car I could take and I, he said, on your way back, stop here in Pennsylvania, because I had to drive across Pennsylvania to get to my college. He said, stop off, would you, and, and visit with me? And I said, oh, sure, I could do that. Yeah, you know, time goes on, the uh, 10 days or two weeks, whatever it was I had off for Christmas. I'm spending every possible moment with my girlfriend, some of it with my parents, and the usual events at Christmas. Next thing you know, I've got like a day to get back to school. I totally forgot that I had said to my grandfather, I don't know if I used the word, I promise, but to me, it was like a promise because I gave him my word. And I said, sure, grandpa. And I, as I thought back on it, at times driving back to school, I thought, oh God, I'm supposed to stop and visit grandpa. And, and it hit me that there was something in his voice that just didn't sound right. He, he sounded a little bit down. And uh, I get back to college and uh, I'm not there, but a week. And my mother calls me and says, Alan, I'm sorry to tell you this, but uh, grandpa died. Oh, I mean, that, that so hit me that. I could barely deal with the, uh, the studies and the work that I had to do to just survive in college. I was not the, yeah, the brightest guy in my freshman year. I certainly didn't know how to study and I had to work harder than the average bear to, just to get passing grades. And, uh, and I was just destroyed by that news. Wow. And I realized then good old grandpa who thought the world of me and gave me a diamond ring and said such nice things to me upon graduation. He, who knows, maybe he knew he was dying and he, he needed to tell me something and strongly enough and so important enough that he wanted me to stop and spend some time with him. Now, throughout your life, you've gotten like, you've had these, um, Sometimes they're like premonitions, right? Other times they're just like some kind of something yeah. telling you to do something, right? Oh, yeah. And that sounds like that was another one of those. But was that like the first time that you got a message like that and then chose not to follow it? No, I wish I could put that into the same category of those things that I call knowings, where, mm -hmm. where a message is received by me and some of the messages I've gotten over the years were so, so crystal clear uh, that they became chapters in, in the book. And um, this was not a knowing. This was just a, 
kind of my word. It was a promise given to my grandfather to go stop off and see him. And I failed him. I failed myself. I, uh, at the time I was bussing tables and washing pots and pans at the, uh, Hayes, Hayes dorm, I guess it was called. It was for freshman, freshman dorm. And uh, part of my job was to go down into these dungeons and bring back big cans of food, you know, for the cafeteria. And I remember I'd go down there in the pitch black and I'd sit there and just ask grandpa, come on, come and visit me down here. Wow. <laughs> you, got, you got to tell me you forgive me. He never, he never, ever appeared. And yeah, you know, that was pain, but that was not a knowing of the knowings okay. that you bring up. Okay. No, okay. knowings were like the knowing when I knew that I was supposed to move to Alaska. And I had just married Anda, my wife, and mm -hmm. we, we'd only been married a very short time. And we were living in L.A. And um, I could give you that little story if you like. Sure. Because it, it was a significant knowing. Yeah, and maybe what we should do is have you do put a little bit of backdrop behind it. I mean, you and I know a lot about your book from all our other interviews, but just in case this is the only interview somebody sees, maybe we should have you do a quick synopsis of what the book's about. Okay. And well, the book is, you know, titled Clues Can Light the Way. Um, it's, it's really about an exploration of puzzles throughout my life that always surprised me because they showed up in different ways. I mean, some of them were near-death events. I wouldn't call them an NDE, a near-death experience, like some people who die and from the other side, they uh, experience what it's like on the other side, come back and talk about it. I, I never passed to the other side, but there were probably 15 to 18 or 20 maybe uh, near-death events where I, I should have died and something stepped in and saved my life. And in, and in some of those cases, it was a knowing of what to do in order to survive. Um, other times uh, in the book, there were premonitions. For example, the uh, premonition that I had about the Exxon Valdez. You know, having spent 55 years of my life working as an oil spill specialist, <laughs> I've been around the world numerous times and about what, 55 or 60 countries working on major oil spills to some minor spills. But uh, in all of those experiences traveling around the world, I, uh, I, I couldn't help but experience things like premonitions. And then the greatest one, I guess, was the Exxon Valdez, where I saw it one morning as I awakened and I wasn't fully awake yet, but I had an image of that ship going aground exactly where a ship did go aground about six months later. And I had even warned Exxon of at the time and Alaska Pipeline and other uh, groups that would have, I thought, really want to take that seriously, but that's a whole nother story. Right. Um, but anyway, it was knowings like that, premonitions, uh, Chance encounters with people that I would, I, they, many times they didn't speak English while I was traveling. These would be people I'd bump into. And the sequence of events between us, sometimes only maybe a, a matter of minutes, other times hours, um, and we would connect 
without speaking English. And, and we knew somehow there was something very magic and magical and special about that time together. And, uh, and you know, through the years, those things kept happening. And, and uh, it caused me to always wonder, how, how is this happening? Why am I being spared? These are mystical experiences that I can't explain. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up in uh, attendance of a church, but I never felt fully comfortable with it because that church seemed to lean toward a lot of issues that were fearful and that I should fear God. And, uh, and I never felt fearful of whatever could create life. That just didn't seem to make sense for me. So when I was about 16, 17, in fact, just before going off to college, I, I pretty much told our minister of the church, I said, I can't go anymore. And, and even when I come home from college, I just can't continue this. It, something doesn't feel right about this. I, and he said, that's okay. Go off to college, mature, grow up. You'll, you'll discover, you know, your path. And uh, it was slow in coming, but I finally did discover my path. And in answer to the subject you brought up of what is my book about, it's really about pulling all these things together, premonitions, uh, connections with people, uh, things that my son, Andrew, and I, and I had three sons. I had three. Unfortunately, one passed away early at 45, but I still have two. They're wonderful sons. And uh, the youngest, you know, he's said some things that if, if we have time. Uh, we got time. Uh, I would enjoy telling you about those. Yes. But, um, but going back, let's see, what was the path we were on? Um, we were going to Alaska. Oh, the knowings and, yeah. and, the, and the example of Alaska. You know what? That was a really curious one. And it was one of the early, really strong knowings where, um, you know, years and years later, where I came up with the word, the best word I could come up with was a knowing because... When something gives you a knowing, you don't hear, at least I don't, for others may be different, but I don't hear words. I don't hear somebody say, do this, but I get a feeling that's so powerful, it's as good as words. And uh, in this case, I had been going to Alaska right after I got married and uh, out of Los Angeles, Santa Monica area. And I'd go up to Anchorage and I'd spend uh, a few days to a week and then come back home to my sweetie. And, and uh, after a few of those trips, I was always working there, never got to get out and see Anchorage or to see other communities in the area. And so I told my boss up there, I said, hey, you know, I'm coming up here working for you guys. You work me to death for a week and then you send me back to LA. Come on, I got to have a day or two and just rent a car and go driving. And he, he said, we love the work you're doing, do it. And this was for the oil companies, right? Yeah. Well, I was working for a consulting firm, but they were working for the oil companies and sometimes agencies, government, and so on. Yeah. All related to oil spill technology. Okay. Well, anyway, this uh, one day I got the car, hopped in it. It was in the fall. Colors were just, oh, they were explosive. It was so beautiful in Anchorage as I took off in the, the mountains, uh, still with just a little bit of snow. Uh, up on the top, you know, where it was just beginning to get cold enough at night. But for the majority of the area that you'd look at, it was 
gold and, and red and yellow and green and, and the leaves were just so incredible. And I'm driving down the Seward Highway, the only highway at Anchorage, heading off toward uh, Turnigan Arm, beautiful uh, arm of water coming in from Cook Inlet. And as I approached it, and I looked out across this vast area of wetland and the mountains behind it, all of a sudden something just grabbed my, my full attention. I couldn't believe it. It was like something had just moved me emotionally so much so that my eyes started to just leak. I was so emotionally taken by this. All I could do was pull the car over. I could barely drive. And I stopped on the side of the road and I sat there thinking, oh, I know what, I think I know what maybe a heart attack would be like or some other event physically, but this is not painful. This is not a hurt. This is something I can't understand. And as I sat in that car and I looked out at this incredible view, a knowing came to me and it said, this is to be your home. I remember those words, this is to be your home. And, and I thought, well, that, 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 boy, I like that. But uh, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to talk my, my bride into coming, moving to Alaska. No way. She's a Southern California gal and uh, she likes the beach and the sun. Santa and Monica. In Santa Monica. Yeah. <laughs> and so did I. You know, I had lived in Santa Barbara for about 10 years. And anyway, uh, I, I just was so moved by it. And finally, when I got control, and the message came to me several times. I drove on down into Turnigan Arm area and out into the mountains and spent the day visiting some little communities along the way. Mm -hmm. I was absolutely falling in love with the, the, the uh, not only the scenery, but the people. They were all so friendly and so nice everywhere I went. And I had an appointment that night with a very good friend's parents who lived in Anchorage. I had never met them, never met them. But on this trip, I called them and I said, hey, I'm in town, I've got a few minutes and your daughter has just been wonderful working for me, a secretary type position. And uh, I was wondering, you know, I didn't even have to say, wondering if I could come and visit. She said, the mother says, oh, we've heard about you. Yeah, come on by. So I went over, drove over, on the way back from my uh, wonderful trip and I uh, had their address and went in, knocked on the door and uh, the mother answered it. She came out and she looked at me and she says, whoa, and I'm like, uh oh, what, 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 am I not dressed <laughs> properly or what? She goes, whoa, and I said, what? She says, you've had quite a day, haven't you? Um, I'm like, uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, what do you mean? She said, come in, come in. I'm so-and-so, and we introduced, she introduced me to her husband, and he was out in the back cooking some fish, barbecuing, and uh, she, she said, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this later. And so we just visited, had dinner, toward the end of the meal over some coffee, she says, so when are you moving? <laughs> and I'm like, what? She said, I, th I think I know what happened. And she said, tell me about it. 
And so I did. And she's just shaking her head and going, mm -hmm, mm hmm I said, but, you know, I just got married. There's no way I'm, I'm going to talk my, my new bride into moving to Alaska. This is not her, her country, her environment. And uh, she said, oh, you don't need to do a thing. When you get a message like that, and it so moves you as that did, you don't have to do a thing. It'll all happen just at its own time and place and, and pace. We had a wonderful evening. I, I left, flew back home the next day, got back, and I, I told Onda, my wife, I told her about it. She goes, oh, God. So you are... Huh? Kind of glossed over some stuff. So did she at some point explain how, like she obviously must be sensitive or something or like she saw she, your aura or something she, like that? Or yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. She did say something because I asked her, I said, how did you know? And that's right. Thank you. And she, and it was something like, um, she didn't say she was a medium. She okay. didn't say that anything about that. She, it was kind of like this, what you just said, she's sensitive to the emotions and the things that go on in other people's lives at times, and she can't even explain it, but sometimes she feels it. Okay. And she already knew the topic. So anyway, I get home and I tell her, <clears throat> uh, well, it was an interesting thing. And I told her about the, the dinner and all that. And she just goes, that's weird. That's really weird. She says, don't get any ideas about moving to Alaska. <laughs> Not me. And I said, that's okay. But, you know, she did say that if, if it's meant to be, it'll happen. Within two days, my boss comes to me and he says, Al, I know you just got back from Anchorage, but look, would you, would you consider going back up? Uh, there's a, a position up there they need just, just for a month just for a month. And I said, what? Wait a minute. I just got married. No, no. Oh, she says, oh, no. Anda's a librarian. She has a master's in library science. She, you could take Anda. In fact, they need some organizing for their library. She can work and get paid while she's there. I said, whoa, well, maybe with that, I could talk her into this. Just for a month. You're sure? Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we go up, we travel up there, I'm just actually a little excited to see what it's like, you know, but certainly coming back to the sunshine. And we get up there. I must admit, we both fell in love with it. She's comfortable with it. Toward the end of the month, we're planning to come back. And the boss comes and he says, Held, have you ever considered maybe staying here? You know, we love the work you're doing for us. Anda could come on and work, you know, or she can look for a position in town and I just, I went and I told on, and she said, oh. well, it was winter now, you know, it's moving into past the fall a little bit. She said, it's going to be amazing for a winter, but yeah, let, let's do it for one year. Okay. Maybe a year. Well, it turned out we stayed for 15 years <laughs> and, and we both enjoyed it. It was a wonderful thing. It was meant to be. It was one of those knowings. That's great. Yeah. Wow. And that was just the start. Holy cow. You, as you know, there were several There's lots knowings. of things. Yeah. Well, if you want to go into the Exxon Valdez thing. <clears throat> would you yeah, that was. A, oh, man, I, I had to wait over 30 years to tell the story, though. Um, 
because I had promised a group of people I would never, ever tell this story. And now it's published in, in, my, in my book. <laughs> so but I haven't had any calls or threats or, or anything. I guess enough time went by. Maybe some people have passed on. Who knows? Um, but that was back, what was that, 19? And that was just a handshake. Did they actually make you sign an NDA or something like that? Or was it just a handshake no, type of commerce? No, I think they realized that to ask me to do it and sign, no, 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 no. That, that could be problematic. Okay. So they, it was in a meeting. And I'll tell you what, how that went. Okay. I'm waking up one morning. All right, now. I'm living in Alaska. I'm working as a consultant off and on for the companies involved in, in um, the sound, Prince William Sound. And often I would do training courses. Well, they had asked me to do a training class coming up, maybe in the fall. And uh, I'd been up in Anchorage now for several years. And uh, I said, yeah, sure. I do this all the time. Be happy to organize a training class. And, and they said, and we really want to deploy equipment, ships, airplanes. I mean, we want to have a good realistic training session. And I said, oh, great. So this, uh, is, an, this is like an exercise, right? It's kind of like a yeah. military exercise right. where you pretend yeah, exactly. like. Yep. Practice yeah. exercise. Okay. So, you, so, you pretend like there was a spill, right? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You, you define it. You write it out. You give everybody the plan. You walk through it as if it was really happening. Okay. Government agencies involved in, you know, everybody. And uh, contractors deploying equipment, the whole thing. So I'm thinking about this. And, and they said, you know, just make it a spill somewhere in the neighborhood of, of Valdez, where, uh, you know, the tankers are coming and going. They said, may have it a tanker accident. I said, Okay. So I'm thinking about this. And, and they had said, by the way, we, we'd like to hold this fairly soon. So you got like a month to prepare this. Well, that would have brought the spill training exercise maybe into, if I remember right, probably around September or something like that. And so this is more like July, August, and I'm beginning to think about it. I wake up one morning with a vision. And, and some of these knowings messages come in actual visions. And I have a vision as I wake up of a tanker aground in, in the sound, right outside the narrows to the Valdez port where the tankers come in and offload or, or unload, <clears throat> excuse me. And I even had the feeling as I looked at this vision that I knew the location of where that ship was. And it was aground. And I thought to myself, oh, I know that area. That's, that's near Bly Reef. There's a reef there where the waters get real shallow quickly outside the shipping lanes. And I thought, boy, that'd be odd. What would a tanker, how could it get over on the reef there? But stuff happens. And I watched and soon I'm seeing black oil just spreading out from the ship to a huge area. And I'm getting the feeling this is a spill of great magnitude. This is something like on the order of hundreds of thousands of barrels, probably, as because I've seen now enough spills to have a rough feel from the magnitude of a spill. And it's still going right. on and it's spreading. Right. And you, by the way, I should mention that you are like the, the world's oil spill expert. 
Well, I, I would never say the world's expert. I'm one of many people. You're the who, guy they call whenever there's a giant spill well, anywhere in the world, right? Well, they used to until I retired a couple of okay. years ago. <laughs> so you know what you're talking about. Like you have some superior, some you have some quite a bit of expertise in this in this field. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I guess I'd have to say that I'm I'm one of the few that has been fortunate enough to uh, you know I went self-employed for most of it, and I found enough work uh, uh, that really satisfied me to stay in the field. Yeah. Right. So anyway. Um, so you had this so, vision. So the vision so, was very, um, there were a lot of details and things and it was very vivid. You were seeing the whole thing. So moved. Your mind's was, eye. Yeah. So moved was it, was I by it that I went that very day over to the people who had asked me to do the training class. And I said, I had a vision. And they looked at me and went, oh, brother, this guy's, and I said, no, 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 no. I had a vision of a ship going aground out in the sound. And, and I think that we should, maybe, maybe that's just a, a, a clue. Maybe it was like a dream. It, it has some meaning because it would be good, I think, to do our training exercise around a tanker going aground outside the narrows. And they go, no, 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 no. In the narrows, maybe, you know, or in the port, calmer waters. Um, I said, no, 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 out in the sound where we can get, have stronger winds and current and the whole thing, and even ice. There's a glacier nearby. And, uh, and they're going, no, no, you're crazy. And I said, and let's have a significant spill. Let's have something on the order of 100,000 barrels. Oh, God. these guys and a gal about fell off their chair. You're crazy. They're, no way. We don't get a train for something like that. And I said, no, no, we'll learn from this. Even if we don't do a good job in the training, it'll move us ahead toward a better position of preparedness if that ever happened. And one guy looked at me and he said, Alan, you realize, because I'd mentioned Bly Reef even to him. And, and then he looked at me, he says, Alan, a captain or his crew would have to be drunk, drunk out of their mind to put a ship on Bly Reef. That's what was involved in this incident because, in fact, I let me jump ahead a little bit, but it was like five months later, I believe it was, yeah, five, five and a half, when it actually happened. And that guy who joked most about it with me was the guy who called me slightly after midnight and said, Hey, El. I don't know how to tell you this, but we've got a, a ship aground on Bly Reef. And I burst out laughing when he said Bly Reef. It was like 1 a.m. He awakened me. And I said, now, this is really cruel. You've been giving me a bunch of crap now for months about my vision. This is cruel to call me in the middle of the night and say, we got a ship aground on Bly Reef. He says, no, we really, really do. And he says, get yourself packed and get down to the airport. We've got a charter flight waiting for you in Anchorage to bring you down to Valdez. We, we've got to get busy on this. This is a, a major spill. I'm just starting to, you know, just shiver a little bit like this is reality. My God, this vision came true. And, you know, in those five months plus, several times we tried to hold the exercise and they just kept saying, no, no, no. I reduced it. 
to about, instead of 100,000, it was like 5,000 barrels of oil from a wing tank, small incident into the shallower or, or the nearshore waters and trying to meet their needs. It kept getting delayed and then it was Christmas. Oh my gosh, and more delays after Christmas. And finally it was like February, if I remember right, February 28th, maybe 29th, I think it was the 28th, right near Easter. And when this thing went aground, of course, I, I got involved for quite a while with it. And I got pulled into some meetings and I won't say with whom or the, the details of that, but let's just say that the word got around to people that I had been warning two of the principal groups involved in that region who would be responsible for the readiness of the spill. And um, they had some, well, I will say attorneys, and some other high-ranking people sat me down at the desk and said, uh, Mr. Allender, do we understand that you warned some of our people in advance about this spill? How, how is that? And I told them about the vision of the whole thing, told them the history of the whole event. And they finally said, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is terrible. It's, it's really bad that someone didn't take that vision seriously because you, you really felt strongly about it and you were in a position to influence it. Is there any chance that <clears throat> you would perhaps never ever talk about this, you know? Ever again. I know, like maybe <laughs> you, you think if ever you were deposed, maybe, you know, litigation or whatever, you could avoid talking about it. And I remember saying, I'm sorry. No, I would never lie if asked about it but I'll never bring it up. And I'll give you my word that I will not bring it up. Now I didn't put a time limit on, thank goodness, because 30 years I thought was enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, so as I sorted through, you know, the few years that I was thinking about maybe someday doing a memoir or writing a little bit about my, my life, I thought that would be an interesting incident because it represents an example of mystical things. Yeah. All of this leading to the, the, the key point in my book is what's beyond all this? It, you know, does life survive? Do, does consciousness maybe survive death? Mm -hmm. And you know, what's on the other side? I mean, these were the things that interested me. So when I was piecing together premonitions, near-death events of my own, um, I couldn't help but think that maybe this is an event I just wouldn't have to reveal unless asked about it. Well, thank goodness and thank goodness for them. I was never asked about it in my depositions. It never came up until my book. <laughs> but I, I, wrote, I wrote it carefully not to uh, incriminate anybody. Well, that reminds me of in, in Star Trek, the original series, Spock, supposedly Vulcans could not tell a lot, could never tell a lie. But they could they could keep their mouth shut, so it's kind of a similar thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's exactly right. right. So, Interesting. Well, here's a question that popped into my mind. So, so you are especially sensitive to getting these like messages throughout your life, right? Yeah. And then the woman that you met um, in Alaska, she's another very sensitive person. She gets messages and things. Yeah. And so there, and 
people get that. But why do you think that your average Joe um, on planet Earth doesn't receive those kind of messages? Or if they do, they're not they're not aware of them. Why do you think that is? I haven't the foggiest idea why, but I do have a, maybe a foggy notion that maybe suggests in my mind that some people are ready for it, almost, almost needing it. I think, well, first of all, let me, let me say that, well, as a scientist, I, I don't have proof of anything related to death. I don't have anything related to what it's like on the other side, other than that one chapter of my book with my dad, because he did experience the other side and told me about it. Other than that, I have no, I have nothing that really strongly says this is the way it is. So without that proof, I feel like I still want to believe that consciousness survives death, that we are comprised of a soul, that our body is just a shell housing our soul. And I feel that, and this may sound a little corny to you or a few other people, but I kind of feel like when you're on the other side, a lot of souls probably know each other and have been on earth and maybe other levels other of existence and other places, but they kind of stick together and they, they learn from these experiences. It's like reincarnation. They come back. I have a feeling in answer to your question, it's no proof and it's only a feel, but I have this feeling that souls sit around on the other side and they talk a little bit about, okay, well, let's see, uh, character so-and-so, I don't know if we have names there. Uh, you're going to go back and this is these are some of the lessons you need to learn because you've been here for a while. You've been through the assessment of your life. You know what you did that was, as I said, impatient, not maybe uh, very compassionate, thoughtful about your grandpa, you know, and other things I did in my life that I'm not proud of. And you need to learn some lessons. To do this, we're going to give you a guardian angel. He or she or the soul is going to be with you and protect you. And maybe some of my near-death events. Tinkle, tinkle. Yeah, tinkle, tinkle. Maybe we're tied to uh, a guardian angel stepping in and saving my butt because I had some really bad close calls. And, um, and, I, and I can't help but think that maybe as souls, we come here with a purpose and that purpose may be guided at times through these knowings. Mm-hmm. And some people need more knowings because they're a little slow, probably <laughs> me. And I just need repetitive stuff. Maybe that's why I'm called Alan Allen. Maybe redundancy was built into me from the beginning. I need to do things over and over until I finally get the message. That's good. (laughs) That's good. Well, the next thing that comes to mind is, um, so you saw uh, an image of the future, right? And then what do you know? Six months later, that image came true. So, okay, so now what does that have to do with how does free will work into that? Does, does that mean that our lives are completely 
everything's all predetermined and we're just kind of on a railroad track through our life? I don't or think what? so. I don't, I don't think so, man. I, I, I really think that uh, I don't believe in predestiny, okay. but I do believe that events might evolve in a way that gives us the ability to make choices on how we interact with those events. Um, I don't know where it starts and stops in terms of being able to tell what happens. I've, I've read enough books now on these topics where some people feel like it's all happening at once. Okay. You know, and I'm sure you've become familiar with those too. Mm. And is it possible that time is really a linear thing that only we on earth need to experience because it provides order and sequence and control that we need as human beings one step at a time. Okay. But maybe on the other side, time is not that way. And maybe there is a simultaneity of events. Okay. I, I don't know. So, okay. So I'm trying to dig into the nuts and bolts of this now. <laughs> so, so what happened when you saw that vision? Was it just a dream and you just got lucky or do you feel like somehow your your soul, your mind somehow went into some possible future and, and witnessed that future? I don't know. I think I think it was probably something that I needed to experience. And I feel that all of my premonitions and all of my interactions with people and even my connections with my, my uh, children and the things they said that gave me more clues, if you will, about why we're here. Okay. I think it, it was something that I needed to experience as a part of my growth, as a part of recognizing the path I'm on. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, well, let's face it. I, I got what I published when I was like 81, 82. Back in the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a year or two ago. And, and, and maybe it took that long to get to the point. Maybe it, it also was fortunate for me sad, incredibly sad for the rest of the world. But this pandemic, as ugly and bad as it is, provided the time that I needed to sit back and retire, plus that event in my head, which was one of those. I had a tumor and it nearly took me out. And miraculously, that tumor also uh, went through some kind of process where you kind of think maybe some angel or something uh, said, no, you still got to write your book. <laughs> you got to hang around another year or two, you know, I hope a year or 20, but uh, that maybe, uh, maybe these things all came together just the right time that along with the other chapters of my life, which many of which ended up as chapters in the book, maybe they, uh, they were purposeful. Maybe they were timed just right. And the pieces of the puzzles were coming together and uh, beginning to form an image, a picture. And as I wrote my book, because I had a lot of time to sit and think about what, do I, what am I going to write? And all I could do was write truth. I didn't exaggerate on stuff. I didn't make stuff up. I wrote it as accurately as I could. And thank goodness I'm kind of a nut when it comes to notes. Mm -hmm. I've kept notes all my life and 
Okay. So I had good data and information. Ooh, okay. So that, here's another thing that came to my mind. Like for this Exxon Valdez thing, I mean, how do we know what, how do, how come we could just say, well, you just made that up after the fact. Like, mm -hmm. is there any documentation? Like, did you ever write down any journal entries or anything like that that would say, hey, I've been talking to these people? Or do you have any hard evidence that proves that you didn't just spin this? fanciful mm -hmm. story after the fact yeah and and you know is that true what you said it, it, it's all very true everything as i present it right and I, i've not made it up and i think you know me well right enough. i do most people know me well enough to know that that i'm i'm honest to a fault i can get myself in real trouble at times right for saying something that's honest and true and maybe not as sensitive as i could be but no it's true and and i did keep notes oh so um, you have like would you have like a diary entry that said dear diaries and such and such and date no, i talked to them no, about that or whatever no, i never i never kept the diary okay uh, i wish i had I, I kept loose notes i've got files of loose notes and i, oh. I would say the strongest thing is the probably evidence of the, the truth is i trusted my experience with a few very close friends okay. and my family from when that happened over 30 years ago in okay. detail and they know what i told them at the time they oh. know what i told them ahead of time before it happened okay so, so you I, have people that potentially could cooperate oh, correct oh, whatever the oh, word is your oh, story easily i could give you names right now of people still living who who i shared it with i knew and they okay. knew. that's um, compelling Oh yeah, yeah. okay. Wow. Yeah, uh, and 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 it, and when you go through the near death events, so let's face it, I've nearly been decapitated. I've nearly been crushed by a moose. I've fallen through ice. What about three times? And thought for sure I'm, I'm dead. I'm going to drown and freeze to death. Uh, you know, trapped in a car where I got stuck in a snowdrift and nearly froze to death. And, right. uh, and then once you almost got burned alive in a thing full of oil, right? Burned wasn't, alive? Wasn't there a thing where like you fell into an icy, you slipped in the ice and fell into the ditch and there was in your oh, like oh, in well, oil? It wasn't, it wasn't burning though. Okay. <laughs> even though even though I have a patent on burning of oil spills, okay. I've never fallen into the burning oil. <laughs> okay. Goodness. But I did fall into a trench. And right. I had a, a good inch or two of I don't know how much it was, but it was enough to fully saturate my eyes. Yeah, we were on a board that broke, and I went in with another guy. It was in uh, Greenland, and uh, that that was a scary event. But all of these experiences, even the kind of almost humorous ones like the, the moose, uh, you know, at times they seemed funny. But now, in hindsight, as I wrote the book, I could look back over 80 years, right on back to some events as a toddler, I was burned by coffee. No, that's the only place I got burned, I guess, where a whole pot of coffee fell on me. And I was put in the hospital at a very wow. young age, a couple of years old. And uh, and I to this day, I don't have a single scar from it, but I had some pretty bad, serious burns. And mm. it was touch and go for a while. But anyway, when those things happen, and you combine them with all of the other phenomenal things that, for example, uh, my youngest son, you know, said at bedtime during our bubble stories, he would, uh, th those things add up and they really, yeah. 
tell you a lot about yourself and about life and the path you're on. Yeah. Well, since it's the Christmas season, of course, what comes to mind is that Jimmy Stewart movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. You know that movie, right? Oh, God. Everybody's seen it a hundred times. That's why we did the jingle for the, I know. the Guardian Angel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's similar. I mean, it's kind of a similar theme, though. Yeah, the way it yeah. is. You know, I hadn't thought about that. You're, you're right. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. So, so if you went back and talked to your younger self, you would have told yourself to go see grandpa. And I would have made it happen. Yeah. But it seems like the other big events in your life, you got some kind of message and you ended up following it. So like somebody or something or some force or whatever did go back and steer you in the right direction it seems oh there were times when other people were involved in these mystical events um one of the most spooky of events that i'll never understand and be able to explain unfortunately involves a guy who i'll probably never ever find because it was so long ago it was still while i was back in college where i got nearly froze to death in the car. And that guy was awakened at night. I think I told you one time to yep. go and save my life. I, I wish I had his name and his phone number and I could call him and say, geez, thank you for saving my life. I, at the time I was just too tired and recovering from a near freezing experience. I didn't have the sense, but at least I did stop him and say, tell me how you knew where I was when he came to save us. And that was the spooky part. So. Cause nothing. he had a permit. He just had a premonition too. Like it's, he just got this idea. He had to go out into the snow. There was some guy out in the snow. Well, right? for, How for some, well, let me back up just a little bit. So people okay. know you and I have had the advantage of sharing a few of these stories. And um, I was on my way back home from college and, and to make a long story short, uh, a blizzard occurred, was with a friend who fortunately was with me, and I've talked with him since, he's my age, and he remembers the details of this. Uh, we got stuck in a drift, car completely covered with snow. Unbeknownst to us, as we tried to talk, shutting off the engine because we were afraid snow would come up over the exhaust and pretty soon we'd either run out of fuel or fumes would get vapors could get into the car. We shut it off, but we talked until we just couldn't stay conscious and we fell asleep. We were freezing to death. In the meantime, there's a, a snowplow driver, apparently not too far away, awakened in the middle of the night. He gets a knowing, which is not like anything I've had. It was a voice. And the voice said to him, go start your run, wake up, go start your run now. And now these are all things that he shared with me later, but it, I had to pull it out of him. He didn't want to talk about it. And he tried to go back to sleep thinking it was some nightmare. Whoa. And uh, he kept getting awakened and he it was forceful. Finally, he gets up. He thought he was going crazy. The voice said, go. And he got in his snowplow, didn't know where he was going other than to do his normal run. But in the middle of the night in a blizzard and he gets in it and he, plows his way out to, he could tell where he lived. He knew it, get on this main road and he's 
plowing, going down the road. And he passes a few cars, a little bit sticking out here and there. And as he passed our car with good old Joe Pacelli, he's the guy, and I've talked with him, and he said it's okay to mention his name in the book. And good old Joe and I are in the car. And and the voice says, stop, check out that car. And, And now... He says, man, I'm going with this voice. You know, I'm not going to fool around. He stops. He gets out of the plow. He goes over and sure enough, he looks in and there's two of us sitting there. And and he worked on us to make a long story short. All the details are in there, but how he he got us moving and the doors were locked. When he finally got me to come around, I couldn't even move my hand to pull the the knob up on those old cars, you know, to unlock it. And uh, finally I did. And he opened it. He's massaging us and talking to us and then we worked on my buddy joe and got him moving so and he drove us down to a nearby house a, a, actually a bar guy woke him up and said hey i got a couple of buddies here can they spend the night sleep in the bar somewhere and i did i slept on the floor guy gave us some blankets and a pillow it was really nice and i got that guy to tell me before he left finally reluctantly he said the whole story about the voice guided him to the car and he just shook his head and he said, I'm scared crapless. He said, I, you must have some good friends topside. And, you know, he didn't mean the guy in the house upstairs. He, he meant way up. He said, because something, something kept you alive and got me to come and get you and save your life. And um, he said it was frightening. He doesn't ever want to experience that again. But, wow. So, you know, you start adding all these things up as I did finally when I'm approaching my 80s, where I say, wow, there's a message here. These things really were strong clues about something beyond this world. I don't know what it is, and I can't prove it. Being a scientist, I'd like an equation I could plug the values in and and say, aha, proof, God exists. You know, we die and go to heaven, and the spirits gather around, and they gather, and they talk about the next trip down, and but I have no idea, no proof, but I sure have a lot of clues about the possibility. Right. So but why like, did I write them? Since you, I mean, now you're in your 80s. So, I mean, you obviously think about your own mortality, right? Oh, often. So, I mean, the, the next world isn't like some far off thing. It's, you're, you're thinking, uh, you know. Yeah. It's you're like on the precipice of it. Probably, Are you trying right? to say I'm about to go? Well, I'm just saying if you're in your 80s, I mean, anyone in their 80s contemplate realizes that, you know, they're not going to live forever. Like well, even I, I talk, I think like that and I'm in my 50s. Yeah. You know? No, I do. I yeah. do. I, oft, I often do. And I, that's why. I don't know how to put this to somebody that maybe is in business for yourself, <clears throat> excuse me, and, you know, and your goal, because I know I was in business for myself for many decades. Mm-hmm. The goal was to make enough money to live, pay your bills. Mm-hmm. Um, and with this book, the one, most wonderful feeling has come over me. I didn't write this book to make money. And clearly I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's a bestseller. But it has found its way to people mm-hmm. who are at the right point in their life where it found them. Right. I, you know, I've, 
I don't mind saying it, it's several hundred books have been sold, but that's peanuts. That's nothing. You know, mm -hmm. What do I make about a buck 30, a, a book? <laughs> I mean, you, you don't get rich writing a book, or at least most people don't. Right. And, and that doesn't bother me. It's, I don't need to market it. The point I wanted to make was because of exactly what you said, I think as we get older, we realize the end isn't too far off. And I have no fear of dying whatsoever, but I don't have a death wish either. Mm -hmm. I want to be around another 20 years. I'd love to see my youngest grandson, four years old, graduate from college. That would be wonderful. But I don't need it. I don't need anything anymore. And I, I don't feel like I have to rush out and market a lot of things. In fact, I'm thinking of dropping Facebook. I'm thinking of taking my uh, uh, website off, you know, just get rid of it. I, I don't need to market these things. I feel like this book is almost like a, uh, like I'm sowing seeds. Like I've got a packet of seeds and there's a breeze and the contents of my book are like the seeds of this packet. And I just flip them into the air and, and they float off and maybe the vast majority of them never fall on fertile soil or moisture enough to grow. But a few of those seeds might find their way into the life or the conditions to be of benefit to somebody. And that's enough for me. The responses I've got from dozens of people, maybe that's not a lot in a man's life, but to me it is. One or two of them would have been enough. Yeah. But from the dozens of people that I've gotten really wonderful responses saying, thank you for writing the book. It, it just arrived at the right time in my life. Maybe they had a recent loss and my dad's story of what's beyond this world mm -hmm. meant a lot to them. Mm -hmm. And the hope that I bring to others, if it's right for them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've had some negative reactions. I've got a very dear friend that's an atheist and uh, he's not moved by it at all. He just feels, well, those are just some freaky events and there's no explanation for them. And I'm too much of a scientist to be interested. He, he hasn't even read Touch the book. Things. He won't even read the book because he says, I'm a scientist. I'm, yeah. I don't need to read it. <laughs> and, and that's okay. You could tell him that he can secretly read it and that you both promise not to tell anybody that he wrote, that he wrote it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> read it, I mean, I mean. <laughs> he's a wonderful guy and he's probably one of the brightest, most intelligent people I know. And I, I still love him a lot. He, he's a good, good man, but you know, I thought that was the thing is, is, I mean, like, I mean, I've watched several um, YouTube shows where you've got like a handful of physicists with PhDs <laughs> talking about, um, you know, how the universe works. And several of them were willing to at least accept that. Well, they all admit that the fit, they none of them know how everything works, right? Yeah, Even yeah, now, it's like yeah. they still don't really understand how quantum mechanics works, and it's been around for a hundred years, and it's still got a lot of empty blanks. And well, we just don't understand how that works. Yeah. So there's a lot of really weird stuff, and even in quote hard science. So I don't know. I mean, a scientist's goal is to study the unknown. Yeah. To be comfortable with mystery. So yeah. his reaction, I, I just can't understand it, but that's okay. I give yeah. him. 
Maybe maybe his wife will find the book and read it. You know. Well, he's probably not an astro- an astronomer or a astrophysicist. Oh, oh right? no, no, no. In fact, he I don't want to say because I don't want to give him away. But okay. no, he he knows a lot about space. Let's say because I know certain physicists don't like astrophysicists. They think they're all a bunch of wackadoodle. I know guys. I, I mean, like they the way they figure out how things away how far galaxies are away is by how bright they are. You don't mm-hmm. actually measure it. No. You know, anyways, let's not go there. <laughs> oh, That's life neat. Is, <laughs> life, life is phenomenal. And I, I couldn't have hoped ever or designed ever a better life than this. I have been so blessed. And That's uh, neat. experiences of traveling throughout the world and meeting incredible people and my family, they're just a... Uh, Oh, just what a wonderful collection of souls. Mm. Yeah. Now, you, you said that you mentioned, uh, we previously told me that you pretty much met like every village in Alaska, all the, all the oh, Inuit. Gosh. You I, like I know prob- them all? A, a very large uh, percentage. I don't know totally how many villages there are, but as you know, some of them are very few people <laughs> there. And, uh, but uh, <laughs> Of the villages, yeah, all throughout Alaska, all the way out, you know, on the chain and just from the south to the north, Prudhoe Bay, living and working up there, uh, all the villages across the north side and down the west side of Alaska, wonderful experiences. And I tell you, the the natives of Alaska, they they are so sensitive to these topics and these issues. I was going to say... I was going to get to that. Yeah. They're very spiritual. I mean, Mm -hmm. the oceans are their garden and they often say that and earth is like the mother, mother Mm -hmm. earth. And they're so spiritually connected with earth and the oceans and the animals. And I would love it. I'd go out to the villages and spend days there and sleep in, in one of the homes and and there and uh, as along with other people. And we would stay in those homes and sit around a little table at night with a candle and just get to know the the elders of that home or that community. So spiritually connected, so wonderful to talk with them. I could share the events of my life. I never knew I'd be writing it in a book. Ooh, there's a neat idea. I should send some of these books up to the village, maybe put it in a library, not, you know, not designate it for someone but see if it finds as a seed some yeah stuff. there you go and uh yeah yeah you think anybody in those villages would remember you as oh. the guy that guy from the oil company that oh came? yeah oh yeah they would i, okay. I think so yeah not only because of my weird name but uh i would run into them often through those years when i lived in alaska and afterwards for another 20 years i would travel up after we moved here Okay. And, and I would work there. And so, no, they, they remember, cause I told a lot of stories that they found so fascinating okay. and they were moved by it. So moved. Many of them would actually give me nice ivory carvings or baleen and various things that they had uh, worked on. And wow. And etched. They were so moved by our connection. Wow. And those things mean a lot to me. You know what comes to mind? I don't know if you know, know this book, but when I was in middle school, we read a book called I Heard the Owl Call My Name. Have you ever heard that book? No, I haven't. Okay. 
Mm. We don't have to go out on a tangent, but it's a similar thing where there was a guy. Um, I think he was a, originally a preacher or something, but he somehow ended up being taken in by the, this village in the Northwest. I don't think it was in Alaska, but mm. he was a Westerner guy. But then he just slowly they he got adopted by the people in the village, and then they shared all their customs with him. And then uh. the, the book is all about how he became. And there was this thing in the book where, like, when you hear the owl call your name, that means it's that it's your time. Well, I like that. Yeah, that reminds me of some of the stories I've shared with you about my uh, living on the ocean floor, and you know, for weeks at a time, and you become one with that community of animals. And and I've experienced that. Wow. And it's it's like becoming one with mentally spiritually with the Eskimo and also with the animals that live near the bottom of the sea. And uh, the experiments we did on them, I, I got, as you know, I, I got to the point where I'd feel guilty exposing them deliberately to oil because that was the research we were doing to study how oil that might find its way to the seabed, how it would impact benthic uh, bottom dwelling types of communities. Mm. And you really connect with them. Yeah, those, these uh, are the, these are the this might that, be the time for you to show us that background of your diving bell thing. Oh, really? Let me see yeah. if I can do that. Uh, I have to go to video, uh, choose a video background, and ta -da! Ta -da. there it is. So that's where you were living for I weeks at a time. Get out of the way. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's me. Um, I don't know if you see my cursor. You probably can't. No. No. Um, anyway, that's, uh, that's me outside the, the main window. You can see there's other smaller windows uh, as well. Uh, right there. Yeah, oh, there <laughs> you go. There's an entryway right here for a small submarine to come up and transfer if they had to a doctor if we had problems during that week. And then uh, this is a little telephone booth, we call this just a, a dome. And we would fill it with air. And then we could stick to our heads up in it, two people, and talk uh, because we could take our regulators out and we could talk in the air captured in that bubble. Oh, that's 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 clever. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this was down uh, 50 feet below the surface and we uh, could make excursion dives to deeper water. But most of the time we did most of our research at that depth. Okay. And, uh, and this is just like off the coast of Santa Monica or whatever? No, no. This was in the Grand Bahamas, off Grand Bahama Island. Of oh, Florida okay. and Bahamas. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. and um, we did it twice. We went back a year later and studied the areas that we had impacted with oil. Because oh. oil does sink in a spill and gets attaches to sediment, uh, detritus, or you know various particulates in the ocean, and it can sink. And uh, it can still contain enough of the lighter ends in the oil in a crude oil spill to really impact those bottom-dwelling communities. Huh. sponges and corals and you know sea urchins and the, the fish every, everything down there can be impacted it's affected by, by it mm. so anyway wow uh, boy i tell you we, we could go on for hours you i know okay well you, we, you, you always bring out so many interesting things in my background yeah Please. well I've, everybody uh, i'll put a link in the description for your book and then again, this is the book that we're talking about right here. 
clues can light the way. Um, wow. It's all about, as Any, its title says, the purpose of life and beyond. Yeah. <laughs> Any last parting remarks you want to say before we sign off? Hmm. May the source be with you. May the source be with you. <laughs> and, and as my dad told me, uh, we come to earth to love and to learn. And as my youngest son said when he was seven years old, uh, souls are made of love and courage. And when I asked him, what do you mean by that? He said, think about it, dad, as if he was my dad talking to me. Think about it. It's with you, dad. Um, he, he, put the, he made the comment that he said, yes, why wouldn't a soul be made of love and courage? Because there's a, there's a lot of love. That's one thing. There's a lot of love out there in the world, but it takes courage to show it. Where does a seven-year-old come up with something like that? And that stuck with me forever. So yeah. may the source be with you and give you love and courage. And also with you. Live long and prosper. I could never do that. <laughs> I must not be a, a true Trekkie. <laughs> uh, that was good. I'll take that. <laughs> All right, Al. Good, good to see you, Matt. You too. I'll see you next time. All right. Peace. Of all beings everywhere. We gotta 